Thanks for downloading a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online. Now stay tuned for your 3CR podcast. Hello and welcome to another episode of Lost in Science. It is Stu and Chris. Chris and Stu, I'm Chris and, and he's Stu. I'm in, Stu. In the studio today, uh, we're clearless for the moment. She's off in uh, looking looking at for hobbits in Indonesia, I think, or something like that. Looking for hobbits? Is that where she's gone? Yeah, and dragons. Ah. I knew she was going dragon hunting. Yeah, but she's also going hobbit hunting, so ah. got very Middle Earth kind of. Yeah. She went in the wrong Expedition. direction, though. If she went north, she should have gone to uh, New Zealand. I think she's finding actual hobbits and actual uh, dragons. Yeah. Well, that's fair enough. So I'm hoping we'll get some travel stories out of her, some scientific travel stories. But in the meanwhile, we are holding the fort, and what a fort we have for you. The Labora Story is uh, they're good friends of ours. Um, yes. That science storytelling event, the Labora Story. I believe you've spoken there, haven't you, Stu? I have. I have. I spoke about my favourite evil scientist. Yeah. Uh, Fritz Haber, who invented... Um, Invented a method for getting nitrogen out of the atmosphere, among other things, including poison gas and some terrible, awful things that he did. Yeah, I think you spoke at the the Halloween yes, edition, which is like yes, the I evil did. version. Because normally it's about people talking about their science heroes, and I hope he's not your science. Oh hero. no, he's not a hero. I, he's you know he's one of the scientists who's had a practical great influence on the world, but he's not wasn't a particularly nice guy. Yes. Well, anyway, I will be speaking at their next show, which will be on Wednesday the 3rd of October at the Spotted Mallard in Brunswick in Victoria, um, in conjunction with the new exhibition at the Science Gallery in Melbourne. The theme is Perfection, which of probably is why I'm, I'm speaking there, really. That's why they, they went to you first. They went to me first. So we're doing a thing on perfection. Yeah. What are you up to, Chris? Yeah, that's right. <laughs> um, so, yeah, look, uh, so, yeah, I needed to find a science hero to talk about. Um, this laboratory has been running for about five years, Though, so I wanted to find someone who hasn't been hasn't been covered before. Hasn't, hasn't got a Guernsey. Hasn't got a Guernsey. I found someone, and they're, they're they're pretty good. Like they are they are someone who I've long respected and admired. But um, I did a bit of research. I had a few, you know, weighing up a few different options, and so I thought that I would. I didn't want to waste that work, and I thought I might talk about them today on the show yes. this week. Yes. Yeah, so uh, they include uh, who we call Newton's French counterpart. Um, and is he called Newton? Uh, you'll find out. And the the world's first scientist. The world's first scientist. Mm-hmm. Okay. So these scientists are underappreciated, generally historically, and possibly for the reason that they're women. Um, but look, we'll get we'll cover some of that. Um, sexism, of course, continues in in science or has been throughout history as well. But we will talk about that as well as we talk about these people. Um, yeah. But anyway. That is going to be for The Labora Story on the 3rd of October. Tickets at thelaborastory.com if you're interested in coming along to that and you're in Victoria. Stu, what are you talking about? Well, I'm actually talking about elephants. I, I realise we, we do talk about elephants quite a lot on this show for, for various reasons. They seem to pop up in all different ways. But the reason I'm talking about them is... The elephant in the room, isn't it really, Stuart? The elephant in the room yeah. is, uh, is that ivory is diminishing in its supply for obvious reasons because elephants are diminishing in their numbers. So um, 
obviously there used to be a lot more elephants, and I'll go into detail about just how many more elephants there used to be, but there used to be a lot more African elephants specifically, but Indian elephants as well. Um, But part of the reason that there's not so many is ivory, and the amount of ivory around is getting less, but it's not necessarily for the reasons people might be thinking, and uh, it's a bit of a... Uh, a bit of a twist in the tail, if you like. All right, that sounds um, twist in the trunk. Sounds mysterious. So um, I'm looking forward to finding out what this is all about. Well, on with the show. Okay, yes, you're listening to Lost in Science, and I am talking about some of the forgotten legends of science, or lesser-known legends of science. Are they legends if they're forgotten, or are they myths? That's a good point. Um, They're neglected. Shall we put their neglected neglected, um, figures in science? And... Largely neglected because they were because they were women. I think we'll be we'll be frank and say it here. And there was a lot of there still is a lot of um, gender bias in in the in the science world, um, particularly in the leadership positions. It is still heavily skewed towards white men, I suppose you could say. Yeah. Um, but I guess historically, when we're looking back at hundreds of years, as we will be doing in this segment, there are also many more structural things. You know, saying women shouldn't get educated and and this kind of thing. So, look, let us dive in and start with our first contender. This is um, Emily du Châtelet, uh, French, obviously. Emily du Châtelet. Du Châtelet, yeah. And she's a French woman. And is this the one who you were saying is the French Isaac Newton? Well, she's kind of not exactly the, the French Isaac Newton. She popularized Newton's work on the oh, continent. So, right. yeah, she is most famous, most well-known for her translations and interpretations of Newton's work and that basically spread the scientific revolution to Europe in many ways. So so his, his, uh, his publicist. You could say that. You could say that. <laughs> so she sort of formed that thing. So, yeah. Um, now, I'm going to try and pronounce some of these French names. Um, apologies to all the, the Francophones out there. I am trying to learn French myself, but... Yeah, okay, we'll see how we go. Anyway, so Emily, she was born 17th of December 1706. Um, she was born Gabrielle Emily Le Tonnelier de Boutreuil. Like I said, apologies. Um, so, yeah, she was um, from a fairly, fairly um, well-off family. Um, she, uh, when she was 18, she married the Marquis Florent Claude du Châtelet-Lamont, and that's where she became Emily du Châtelet. Okay. Chastelet, Chatelet was kind of the modernised version of it. It's not important. Um, anyway, but yeah, so she married this guy. He was, he was an older guy. Um, as the French do, she, she had a lover on the side. Mm-hmm. Uh, it was tolerated. Her lover happened to be the French writer Voltaire. Right. Yes. So uh, French society and her husband were rather tolerant of this sort of things. Um, she took off with Voltaire. Together they set up basically a research institute in a town called Siri, C-I-R-E-Y. Okay. Yeah. Um, now, Voltaire had, he'd spent some time in exile in England because he was kind of prone to offending the establishment. And he had actually met Isaac Newton and Newton's family over there. And he kind of was a bit of a bit of a fan. And, and Emily also became quite a fan of Isaac Newton. In fact, she started off her with her mathematical career. She was quite keen on Leibniz who was oh, okay. kind of Newton's rival on the yep. continent, and she switched to, to Newton. She switched basically. to Team Newton. She switched to Team Newton. I mean, it, 
may have been at the cost of some of the uh, the mathematics because 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 uh, Leibniz did have a better notation. But anyway, um, so yeah, she she and Voltaire worked together on a textbook called Institution de Physique, uh, which covered sort of modern physics at the time, including mm-hmm. Descartes and and Newton's work. But due to again sexism, when it was published, Voltaire was credited as the sole author, and he thanked her in the introduction. Okay, and and so when was it sort of uncovered that she'd written some of you know or, or you know as much of it as she did? Oh, uh, look, was it's, this much it's, later. It's or? not clear. Like she was quite well known. She okay. was called known at the time as being a bit of an expert on this stuff. Um, you know, French society was full of all kinds of people flitting in and out and, mm. and this kind of stuff. So yeah, she was kind of in those circles. People come to consult with her, but this, this wasn't her famous work. This was okay. um, so this was an earlier one, and she wasn't satisfied with this, and she wanted to do a proper translation of Newton's Principia. Okay. Uh, the now, full thing. The full thing, yeah. And she didn't want to just translate it. She wanted to kind of yeah, interpret it and expand on it. So yep. kind of have her own kind of notations on it. One of the things that important difference that she made is that she realized the importance of kinetic energy. Uh, for those of you who know something about physics, that's half mv squared, where v is velocity. Mm-hmm. Uh, Newton was more interested in momentum, which is just mass times velocity. So right. she realized that the actual, for energy, you needed to have the square of the velocity. Uh, and so that was a different quantity and had a big effect. So she realized, yeah, that was kind of a change that Newton really didn't have so much in his work. So it was kind of the next, the next step onwards of the development of physics was understanding the importance of energy. Um, what else? Uh, look, there's many other stories about her scientific achievements. Um, one of them I like, though, is that she was uh, quite a gambler. It seems because she used her mathematical skills uh, to have a gambling system, but you know it's not 100% reliable. She lost a lot of money, and what she did one time to get out of her gambling debts, she supposedly came up with an early form of what today would be like a financial derivative. In that she persuaded some tax collectors. She so she bought she paid, she paid some tax collectors a small amount of money for their future earnings. So they got some money immediately, but then she got the rights to their future earnings. Okay. And she used the proceeds from that to pay off her gambling debts. So that, and that is kind of a common practice today. People buy futures and yeah. this sort of thing. Interesting. So, yeah, that was, that was one of the achievements. Anyway, um, so things went on. She and Voltaire, they both end up having affairs with younger people. Um, Emily got pregnant again to a poet at the age of 42. Um, that was quite old. She knew it was going to end badly. Um, so she worked frantically to try and finish her translation mm. of Principia. Um, she was working 18-hour days during her pregnancy. Wow. Um, she died a week after her daughter was born. Um, the baby died uh, about a year and a half later as well. So not a happy ending, I'm no. afraid. Um, but the translation and commentary was published posthumously 10 years after her death. It remains the standard translation in French. Um, and as I said, it was a huge contribution to the scientific revolution in Europe. Even today, it's the standard translation. Well, you know, it's like it was an accurate translation, I yeah. guess. You know. Yeah, yeah, I guess. I mean, it's, not... it's mostly about the maths, right? Yeah. Yeah. Newton's original version in English would be the... Standard English version. I think it was in English. I, yeah. I assume. Well, yeah. unless he wrote it all in Latin, because yeah. it's the kind of thing people used to do back then. Anyway, let's move on to candidate number two, who is Mary Somerville. Now, she's a more 19th century okay. uh, person. She was born Mary Fairfax on the 26th of December, 1780, in the Scottish borderlands. Oh, hi. 
Uh, I'm not going to do Scottish very well either. Now, her family, they were also a fairly distinguished family, not particularly wealthy. I found conflicting information about their attitude to her education, her family's attitude to education. I had one reference that said that her father wanted her to study bookkeeping so she could be useful, but then apparently also he thought that abstract thought would be too much for her and this kind of stuff. So she was interested in science fairly early on, but not exactly encouraged by her family. Right. Uh, in 1804, she married a sailor, Samuel Gregg, who was in the Russian Navy. Um, he also didn't think much of, of women. Uh, he also didn't think much of science, apparently, either. So not exactly great for, for marrying. Yeah, yeah, it seems uh, a bit of a downer. He didn't last long. He died three years later. Um, At sea? I'm not sure, actually. Yeah. Um, her, her second marriage to William Somerville was much better. Um, he was an inspector of hospitals in, in Edinburgh. Um, they both got into geology, various other forms of science. Um, it was very fashionable, though, geology for a while there. Well, she made it fashionable. That's okay. the thing. She, she did a lot of work towards that end. Um, but, yeah, they, they moved to London. Um, he got elected, got himself elected to the Royal Society, um, and they moved amongst the scientific circles hmm. in London, you know, meeting people like Charles Babbage. You know, she got to see an early version of his... Calculating machines and this kind of stuff. Anyway, um, what she's famous for, she's also famous for writing books. Um, Her first was The Mechanism of the Heavens. It became a standard textbook on astronomy, as you might suggest. Um, Her second book reflected the fact that she was a bit of a polymath. It was called On the Connection of the Physical Sciences, and it covered astronomy, physics, chemistry, botany, and geology. Uh, On the strength of it, she got elected to the Royal Astronomical Society in 1835, and along with Carolyn Herschel, who was elected the same year, I think you've discussed Carolyn Herschel before, um, they became the first women to be in the Royal Astronomical Society. Um, In her book, she also noted discrepancies in the calculations for the orbit of Uranus, um, and she suggested that if these continued, there could be an indication of another planet, which of course turned out to be Neptune. Um, in a later edition, she she noted that yes, this was this as predicted. This was all correct. Yes, <laughs> her third book, Physical Geography, was the first textbook on that topic. Um, it earned her a bit of the ire ire of the church. Um, they did not like the kind of the stuff about past ages and extinct animals and this kind of stuff. Oh, yeah, yeah. But, and this is, you've got to remember too that this is geology before they'd acknowledged tectonic plate movement yeah, and all sorts. Yeah, so it's pretty. It's it's pretty sort of. Uh, Edgy stuff. Yes. Uh, now, she died in 1872, aged 91. Um, one of the last things she did in her life, um, John Stuart Mill created a, a petition for women's suffrage, and she was the first person to sign it. Um, it's first signature on that. So that was one of her last things that she did about four years before she died. But she has a bit of a legacy. There are many things named after her, including the girls' school Somerville House in Brisbane. Oh, okay. But I did mention that she was the world's first scientist. And how, how do we come to this conclusion? Okay, so the philosopher and historian William Wewell, I don't know how to pronounce that either, in his review of her book, her connection, he made up the word scientist to oh. describe her. She was the first person to be called a scientist. And that was partly because her work covered such a broad field. You couldn't just call her like an astronomer or a botanist or something like that. Oh, yeah, she couldn't be a yeah. biologist. She was a scientist because yes. she was so so prevalent in different fields. But more particularly, the, uh, the common alternative term was man of science, ah. and that didn't really apply. So hence the need for the word scientist. And yeah. so she was officially the world's first scientist. At least and you didn't call her a scientess or something. No. That would be, yeah, not, not a step forward necessarily. So I like to think that's a fairly good legacy for that's her great. as well. That yeah. is pretty it's good. really good. Yes. Across Australia on the Community Radio Network, you are listening to A Lost in Science.
So elephants have been around for quite a long time, but in 1930, there were somewhere between 5 and 10 million African elephants all over that continent. Uh, And the numbers today have dropped to less than 10% of that population. So they were listed, uh, they were including the international list of critically endangered species in the 1990s, and there are less than half a million elephants in Africa today. Um, So that's a lot less than their natural Mm. uh, population size. Um, And people might say, oh, but what about Indian elephants? There's always been a lot less uh, elephants on the subcontinent. There's only ever about, they think, maybe half a million. But now that's down to about 30 or 40,000. What Uh, about in other parts of uh, Southeast Asia? I'm sure they they must be little bits and pieces, but they're talking about the wild, I guess, the wild populations. So, um, obviously, uh, habitat loss because of land clearing and logging uh, and the expansion of farmland to feed growing human populations is part of the cause of this massive reduction in elephant numbers. But there is one other obvious, very direct cause, which is poaching of elephants for their ivory tusks. So ivory is a historically valuable material. It's basically made of the same stuff as teeth. There's a substance called dentine, which makes up our teeth and and most mammal teeth. Yeah. Um, And that's that's what tusks are. They're just big, giant teeth. teeth. Yeah. Um, So hang on. So are are our teeth, could they be used as ivory? Potentially. Yeah. They make little jewellery out of them. Um, you know, and and that's what people used to do. They used to uh, uh, get elephant and walrus tusks uh, and carve them into different shapes, make ornaments and jewellery and things like that out of them. Um, there's another kind of poaching, which is rhinoceros horns, but rhinoceros horns are not made of the same stuff. So they're not ivory. They're just mm. uh, these horns. They're actually sort of compacted hair that grows out of the end of the... I thought they would be like... Like a thing in there, like a keratin yeah. So, kind well, of thing. keratin is a, is yeah. a protein that's common to both. Okay. So, um, but yeah, so rhinoceros horns are not the same at all. Okay, um, they're still highly prized, and part of the reason rhinoceros are depleting in their numbers, um, but they're used in uh, various forms of so-called alternative medicine, which have literally no demonstrable therapeutic value whatsoever. So, we should just stop doing that. Um, the ivory, on the other hand, does have, you know, it's got an aesthetic value, I guess, um, to people who like that sort of thing, but it's really just teeth. You're just collecting 
teeth of dead things. Is that what the tooth fairy was all about? <laughs> maybe. Maybe mm. she was hoarding uh, ivory. Mm. Um, she, she literally lived in an ivory tower? I don't know. Um, so elephants have been hunted for their ivory tusks for most of history and probably back when people also hunted them for food as well. They probably did eat elephant um, back in the day. But in modern times, the elephants that are hunted for their ivory are just killed. They kill the elephant, take the tusks, and just leave them um, lying around. So they're they're just sort of they're going to waste effectively. Um, they're not doing anything but taking the ivory. Um, and because of the rapid decline in the population and the effect of ivory poachers on elephant populations, a lot of antique dealers have stopped trading in ivory. So there's Australian antique dealers. Some of them used to trade in you know hundreds of thousands of dollars worth of ivory a year, and a lot of them have just stopped just stopped trading in ivory because they can't... It's very difficult to tell the the difference between antique ivory Mm. and modern ivory because they don't really, you know, it's it's a lot of testing you would have to do to to prove it and people are sort of pretending that new stuff is actually old stuff by artificially ageing it and things like that. Um, And Australia has banned the import of ivory as well. So um, you're not allowed to import ivory into Australia and a lot of other countries are banning the import of ivory uh, as well. Just to try and do a, you know do the bit by removing the demand, I guess. Um, so the elephants in the wild that are usually targeted are the biggest elephants that that people can find because the bigger the elephant, the bigger the tusks, generally speaking. And the hunting of the biggest of an animal generally puts uh, evolutionary pressure on the gene pool of that species. Whatever gets hunted, if you keep taking out the big ones, you end up with smaller animals. Um, so research published in 2015 in the open source journal Ecology and Evolution looked at a number of features of African elephant populations uh, and comparing historical data from the mid-20th century um, and more recent data. So there was a peak in elephant poaching in the 70s and 80s. So I said before there used to be 5 to 10 million uh, African elephants most of that number disappeared in the 70s and 80s due to a massive increase in poaching. Wow. Um, so male elephants are often the targets because they're bigger, um, but also the males have bigger tusks in proportion to their body size as well. So there's a sexual dimorphism in elephants. The, the females have smaller tusks, the males have bigger tusks. Um, so the males often get targeted. And that removes them from the gene pool. But the tusks of both male and female African elephants are getting smaller in proportion to their bodies in multiple populations that they've studied in Africa. Now, is that, but is that like a natural selection, like evolution thing? Or is that just the fact that the, the, the ones with the big ones have all been shot and we're just seeing a population that's just been... Like, is there actually genetic change going on? Is if what I'm asking. Yeah, if they if they adjust for age and size, yeah, then they they see that yeah they are actually getting proportionally smaller and probably genetically. But that's just a general size reduction. Mm. Um, there was also uh, further research published in 2016 um, that looked into the shift in prevalence of a gene that controls tusk development, and one version of this gene makes elephants tusk-free. So no oh, matter right. how old they get, they don't grow any tusks. Um, and around 5 to 6% of female elephants in historic populations didn't have or didn't develop tusks throughout their lifetime. Uh, and 
something somewhere less than 1% of males didn't develop tusks due to the the presence of this gene in their uh, in their DNA and um, in some areas according to this research uh, in some areas that suffered heavy poaching where numbers were reduced to only a few dozen individuals in some places um, the number of tusk-free elephants has increased up to 98% of the population. Wow. So nearly all the elephants have got no tusks because they've all got this gene. So that- this is, is this a good thing? Is this a solution to the poaching problem provided by evolution? Is, is, is this a positive? Well, this is, this is the issue. It may seem like, well, it's protecting them from getting, from getting killed by poachers for their ivory tusks, but... It's actually part of their natural behaviour to use those tusks. Ah. They actually use them to dig up um, water, you know, water uh, sources in the ground. Um, they apparently dig up various things of you know various food sources as well, so tubers of plants and knock trees over and things yeah. like that with their tusks. And also the males, you know, historical behaviour competition for mates is they sort of clash with each other with their tusks and that's that's their sort of um their their sexual competition uh behavior as well so without their tusks they will kind of have to change a whole lot of other behaviors to make up for the fact that they don't have tusks anymore so they've you know it's shifted one one tiny gene is much more prevalent and that will result in them having to shift a whole lot of other behaviours in order to survive. So it seems like a good thing on the surface, but it may actually be uh, to the elephant's detriment in the long term. Tusk, tusk, tusk. And that is it for another episode of Lost in Science. Uh, We have talked about some great female scientists of the past, and we have talked about uh, the perhaps tusk-free elephants of the future. Now, as I mentioned, um, the Labora story, the next episode of that is on the 3rd of October in the spot of Mallard in Brunswick. You can get tickets at thelaborastory.com. Uh, now, Lost in Science, it is recorded at the studios of 3CR in Melbourne, and it airs across Australia on the Community Radio Network. Uh, now, we would love you to get in touch with us, so please, if you have the time and the inclination, send us an email. You can email us at lostinsci, that's S-C-I, at gmail.com, or you can like our page on Facebook and send us messages there, or you can find us on Twitter. We are at lostinscience one uh, and you can, you know, send us a message there as well. Or you can just, you know, if you want to stay electronically connected, you can look up our podcast. If you're through a podcast service like iTunes or something like that, you're allowed to give reviews, then please give us a good review because then that helps us reach more people. It makes us come up better in searches. Um, or you can just listen to us on the radio like a lot of people do. Same time next week when Stu, Chris and Claire will get Lost in Science!
Thanks for listening to a 3CR podcast. 3CR is an independent community radio station based in Melbourne, Australia. We need your financial support to keep going. Go to www.3cr.org.au for more information and to donate online.